0: Are you still shopping the old fashioned way? Well then buzz on over to bzid.com. bzid is your number one online auction source for brand name new items from companies like Apple, Sony, Canon, Dyson, Samsung, and more at discounts of 75, 85, and 99% off retail.
1: Go to bzid.com and use the offer code VIP and get three bids for the price of one. That's offer code VIP to get three bids for the price of one. Go to bzid.com. B-E-E-Z-I-D.com. B-E-E-Z-I-D.com. Beezid.com.
2: You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at houseofcardsradio.com.
0: You know what cheers me up? What? Rolled up aces over kings.
2: Ladies and gentlemen. Boys and girls.
3: The House of Cards. Today, the game is different. With author
2: and professional poker player, Ashley Adams.
3: Okay, you have some skill.
1: Hello, listeners. Welcome to House of Cards. For those of you who have listened to shows in the past, I want you to know that I am proudest about the two Interviews that we're about to have here on House of Cards today. Two guests, each fascinating in his own way, from two different parts of the wonderfully broad poker spectrum. The first is an intense, philosophical, brilliant Phil Lack talking about poker in general, poker theory, and the movie that he just did, Runner, Runner, which is uh, coming out right now. And then our second guest, also fascinating in his own way, a brilliant investigative reporter and author named Matt Birkbeck takes on the subject of Russell Buffalino, known as The Quiet Don, and that's the name of his brand-new book, Out Right Now, The Quiet Don, the unto- untold story of mafia kingpin Russell Buffalino. He also gets into the story of the corruption behind the Pennsylvania casino uh, pennsylvania casinos and their development in the late 90s and early 2000s so both guests fantastic interviews please stay tuned you will enjoy this show
0: Just use offer code B-A-B-E-16 at adamandeve.com. Are you still shopping the old-fashioned way? Well, then buzz on over to bzid.com.
2: You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at HouseOfCardsRadio.com. You're listening to the House of Cards.
3: Hit me, you five cards, stud. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Goddamn!
1: Hi, listeners. You're listening to House of Cards. This is Ashley Adams, and as promised, we have one of the best-known images and names in the poker world joining us now. His name is Phil Lack. He is known or used to be known as the Unabomber. He is a professional poker player who has just uh, been making a movie, Runner Runner, which we'll talk a little bit about. But without any further ado,
4: here he is. Phil, are you there? I'm here. Hey, how are you doing, Ashley? Good to be on the show. Thanks well, for having me.
1: I'm really glad. We're we're really proud to have you on, Phil. Uh, for those listeners, the two or three out there who don't know your story, could you just give a thumbnail sketch of how you came to be one of the uh, best-known professional poker players?
4: Well, one of the great things about poker is it's a... Um, uh meteor uh what's it called when uh a rise to the top is from accolade it's an accolade driven profession if you know what you're doing you'll just rise to the top you don't need to have a college degree or uh you don't you don't need anything except heart determination patience to learn the game and anyone can be a winner of poker it's an incredible opportunity that's available to anybody it's really but you do have to like be good at games and, and be loving the whole thing. So, you know, that's how it happened. I just loved games, and I fell, found, about, found out about poker, and then I started winning things. That happens to anyone who loves games and is clever enough to figure out the ins and outs, you know?
1: Well, now, slow down one second, Phil. Lots of people love poker, and very, very few rise as far as you have risen. What did you do, and when did you get a clue that, hey, you know, I might be able to do this for a living? Uh,
4: well, I certainly, my guidance counselor in high school didn't, no one told me that games were available. I went off and got a degree in engineering and what have you, I did some work in finance and, and, uh, engineering and whatever before I actually discovered gambling quite by accident. And it was probably good that I didn't discover it until a little bit later in the game. If I discovered it as a profession, maybe I would have skipped out on everything, you know, education wise, especially, you know, how did you uh, discover it?
1: What were you doing I and did... how did you f- stumble into poker?
4: Um, I, I stumbled into poker because uh, I've always just been around games and visited games, clubs, etc. and uh, I remember I was shooting pool once in New York, and it was in a poker room, and I just noticed the poker room nearby, and I'd never played poker, but I'd played other games, you know, backgammon and chess and pool and whatever, and I was just attracted to it kind of casually, and one thing led to another. I played it one, one night, and that was it. I just needed about... Half an hour to fall in love. It was, it's a really fun game. It's really fun. If you <laughs> ever accidentally end up playing it, you're going to be hooked,
1: you know? Were you at the Mayfair Club or was it some other place?
4: Yes, that was the, the first place I ever saw poker was at the Mayfair Club, but my first hand of poker played wasn't there. Uh, I actually didn't have the money to play at the Mayfair. That was a big stakes, you know, back, way back. I was playing, uh, uh, the Diamond Club, uh, place John oh, Hammond, yeah. in New York in the
1: twenties. That, that was in the uh, e- e- the West Twenties down in yeah, Manhattan, right?
4: Twenty Fifth West Twenty Third or something like that. I forget. That was down in nineteen ninety nine, two thousand something like that. That was for. And then right after I learned about poker, I went off to um, California, and then through a very random domino succession of things, I met some interesting people. One person I met was Brian Koppelman, Brian became a buddy of mine, and when he was telling me that he was making, not Rounders 2, but a different movie that had poker in it called Runner Runner, I was like, Brian, oh, wow. And uh, one thing led to another, and he, he, we had. I ended up going down and participating in the building of that movie. It was a lot of fun. The experience was great, and it doesn't bother me at all that my scene was left on the editing floor. Uh, <laughs> it, it was going to be a small part anyways. It was just like Antonio and me and some people playing poker uh at a poker table in well where else would you play poker but like outside at this like nighttime party where some covert operations were happening between justin and ben affleck in the espionage thriller that is you know i haven't seen the movie yet it's coming out soon but uh that was a lot of fun we had a lot of fun making that uh production and i it's and, people, and it was, you know, I don't know. what's What else can we talk about? Well, let me ask you this. Where do you play your poker these days?
1: Are you just following okay. a tour around, or do you play in a local I play, casino? I,
4: I'm a blend player. I play, I would say, 20%, 25% home games that are just cash games, whatever. And I probably play like 35% tournaments and then maybe 35% casino cash games. So I kind of roam around right now if, from this very moment. I'm uh, – In Atlantic City, there's a World Poker Tour tournament here that had a thousand entrants. I'll be going to day two with an average stack. Uh, These thousand entrant fields, it's you know, it's a lot of prize money. First place for this thing will be around nine hundred thousand US, and all I have to do is stay in the tournament for six days. uh, (laughs) Anyone who does that wins the nine hundred. And you know, there's places, there's money for places second through. Fiftieth uh, as well, or a hundred, whatever. So that's Do you like right now. Do you like huge fields, or do you prefer it's having awesome a smaller field? Like, oh my God! Give me the most ginormous fields because I, the bigger the field, the more opportunities you're going to have. If you can get to day four and five, you know I like to play. My dream thing, you said, Phil. What, what's your dream poker? What's thing? your Actually, dream
1: I'll, poker thing, Phil? I'll
4: tell you, it would be like a two mile drive to a home game, playing high, high stakes poker with some Sharpies, some Sharks, and then a couple of astro fishes. where all I can do is when <laughs> God-unfold stacks of chips and whatever. It would just be, like, crazy. So how do you get to recreate that? Well, it's hard because, you know, those games aren't every day. And since they're not every day, you have to create them. And how do you create that? You just go to the Borgata and you survive. If you survive four or five days, all of a sudden – you're looking around at 30 people. Four of these guys might not have really any shot at winning, and or maybe they have some shot, but they're essentially playing really high-stakes poker now. They're playing like 300, 600 no-limit, whereas you can't find them in the casino playing a cash game that big. They're not going to put down, uh, you know, they're not going to put down a quarter million U.S. for a buy-in game that merits the blinds they're playing with. But that happens in tournaments. By the time you get to day five, you can be <laughs> check-raising a guy for the effective. Amount of uh, 100, 200,000 US dollars. This is like what I live for. I love check raising with air. I love check raising with the nuts. I love betting, you know? it's And to bet, you have to be playing cards. And the, to keep betting, you have to play the cards well. Because, you know, the second you derail yourself, you're out and there's no more betting. You have to do something else. Well, it, it sounds the way you've
1: told the story, and we've heard it in bits and pieces here, is that you just kind of fell in love with poker and you had a lot of natural energy and excitement about it and you played poker and you won and you've been winning ever since and it's been fun and great and high energy and terrific and everybody can do it. And what I'm wondering is, do you ever study the game? Do you actually do any, or is it all just natural talent?
4: I will preface, I'll answer that simply yes. I'm the guy that in the shower will have a, nirvana moment and realize how I could have played a hand a little bit better. Or I'm constantly thinking at the table. I'm not really thinking that much about poker away from the table. It happens from time to time. But when I'm at the table, my main is, I, even if I'm not in a hand, I'm racing through the, uh, the betting patterns of the other players to see if they match up with good play, imperfect play, how I can exploit them in an weighted game environment that will, you know, appear in the next hand. And, I've always been, a, I love learning. When there's something, nothing going on, you can make something go on in your head by just learning. And by the way, don't get me wrong, I was always the kid, I was always a little bit of a nerd, you know? I was the kid when the Rubik's Cube came out. I was a punk-ass little kid. I found the cube. I knew there were, like, I was already enough of a nerd that I knew that there was little, uh, what do you call it, those solution puzzle things, when the answer books for the yes, solutions. Yes. But I, was, I didn't want to go and... I wanted to see how deep I could go on my own. And, uh, you know, to prove that I am not uh, the next John Nash, I could only get the first two levels. The third level I could not get as an 8-year-old on the Rubik's Cube. I had to go. I eventually went to uh, and broke down, went to the library, got the little solution book, went, oh, wow, there's three different solutions. Oh, I see. You know, my brain was stretching, but I wasn't good enough to get all three levels. But uh,
1: When you were 8, you weren't good enough. Yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> <laughs> and by the way the funny thing is that whole rubik's cube thing i remember pick and so i knew by the time i was 10 years old i could do a rubik's cube i could do it in under a minute as an adult i picked up a rubik's cube and i started fumbling with it and I realized oh my god i was worse and less nimble as a thinker and was than i was as a 10 year old i didn't i think that if I, if you gave me a rubik's cube i'm pretty sure it would take me about two to three times as long as it took me when I was 9 to solve it again cuz I don't remember I'd have to reteach myself the whole thing so uh but I'm okay with that cuz I would still be doing I'd still be working towards improvement you know so that's the answer I guess okay actually.
1: good that's a good answer i got i got a follow up question for you let's say you're in a room of 20 somethings who are all want to be professional poker players and they're looking to you as the oracle of poker wisdom to give them advice about how to pursue their career do you give them any instruction about how to
4: study? What do you tell them? Yeah. Actually, first of all, I want to uh, say that you are a, I've for the listeners out there, I've only met Ashley now for these first, uh, I don't know, perhaps 20 minutes or something. You have a good soul. I can feel you have good energy, and you remind me of my Uncle Tom, a man that I, I have always loved and will always love. His style of communication is similar, and I know exactly what you're reaching for. and So I'm going to give you – Both that compliment and the answer you're looking for. And the answer is this. Yes. Um, There are things I would say. The first one I would say is, you know that billboard that you see in Times Square once in a while or something? You see it somewhere and it says, be happy with nothing, comma, and then, and it doesn't say and then. It just says, and be happy with everything. But it's implying and then be happy with everything. Because once you achieve happiness with just nothing, which is, you know, the Buddhist Zen Try to arrive now. Why do I shoot into this little philosophical excerpt with poker? Because poker is something like 85% philosophy. Then it's 15% game theory and uh, non-weighted gaming theory and and uh, you know co- <laughs> um, competition and cooperative environments, etc. It's like everything stems off without having the Buddhist kung fu. David Carradine catch the ass <laughs> from behind. Kind of mentality without having this. I can walk the rice paper and leave no footprint kind of spiritual uh, paradigm. You're almost drawn dead in poker because it will, it will vet out all the humanness in you and chop it up on a butcher block and leave just remnants of you because it's, uh, it's, a, it's very um, – it's like nature. It's like trying to surf nature. And sometimes the wave will just just push you down and drown you for five minutes. And if you're not tough – Uh, spiritually, it will uh, engulf engulf you. I don't know. I
1: like that. No, I like uh, just for those who just tuned in and couldn't figure it out for themselves. We're talking to Phil Lack, and I like what you just said. Be happy with nothing. Be happy with everything. I I think that is the key in many ways to embracing poker because you've got to be able to accept it. it, 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 Yeah,
4: and it reminds me like when I remember when I was learning billiards, now I had – growing up with the pool cue a little bit here and there, but nothing like extraordinary. Maybe I was when I was 20, I could get two balls in a row, and I felt like powerful, you know? Whereas I was playing pool with sometimes friends that could get five in a row in, and one day I was out with Mikey, and he could get five, seven in a row and no problem. And I asked for his advice in a shot between two choices, and he said, Phil, the point of this game is not to make the next shot. The point is to approach it with enthusiasm of trying to puzzle it out and do your best with the moment. The outcome is completely irrelevant. It's the pursuit of that moment and trying to optimize it that all that matters. And you're on your own journey for that. It's like snowboarding the backside of a mountain. And, uh, that very much applies in poker. If you're just happy with whatever level you're at, you're, it's very, you know, it's like golf or some other kind of professions that, that you just keep getting better at your whole life. Uh, it's about enjoying the journey kind of, you know.
1: Well, Phil, you've made me and I think our listeners enjoy this journey. I think we could talk for a long time philosophically, but I we have to end. And I just want to thank you for this. And uh, I want to know, where's the next place you're going to go to play poker after the Borgata? Do you have another place I'm lined much, up? Uh, there's
4: some significant venues. There's uh, the World Series of Poker Europe is happening in Paris uh, in October. And then there's a World Poker Tour event right after that in Paris as well. And so those are the next two. Then I'll then there's the Aussie Millions, and, uh which is in Australia, obviously that's a big one. And and possibly if I can fit it in in January, there's the PCA, which is a huge event Poker stars does down in down uh, down the islands. And so they're in all the Bahamas, fun. Yeah. Some of them are a little travel, but they're all worth it if you finally get there. Well. I am very
1: pleased that you came on our radio show. I would love to see you on a TV show, Phil. You are so animated, so enthusiastic, so philosophical about poker that it's contagious. And I want to thank you for coming on House of Cards.
4: You're very kind. Thank you for having me. And, I, uh, and it was great meeting you. I actually hope to meet you in, day, in person one day.
1: Me too. That's All Phil right. Lack. Uh, wonderful, wonderful guest. Maybe the best interview we've done here for a long time. Fascinating. You're
4: too kind. You're too kind.
1: you. <laughs> Take care, Phil.
4: All right. See you, buddy. Bye.
1: All right. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back.
5: Are you or a loved one currently suffering from arthritis, COPD, or other chronic conditions and can't get relief from current treatments? If so, there may be another option. Local physicians are conducting research studies in your area today, and you may be eligible to receive up to $1,300 in compensation for participation. These studies are confidential and are taking place for a limited time. Call 855-912-PAIN, 855-912-PAIN today to see if you qualify. Health insurance is not required. Call 855-912-7246.
2: Give us a call at 609-474-HOCR. That's 609-474-4627. The House of Cards Hotline, available 24 hours a day. Call the hotline or send us an email at info at houseofcardsradio.com. And don't forget to visit our website at houseofcardsradio.com and follow the show on Twitter and Facebook. By leaving a message with House of Cards, you can send to having your message played on the air.
0: Some houses are born bad. You're listening to the House of Cards. I never dreamed that any mere physical experience could be so stimulating.
1: Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. We don't just have poker players on this show. We like to expand the knowledge of our listeners to the world of gambling in general, and this time is no exception. We're very fortunate to be to be visited by a three-time author, at least I think he's written three books, of the genre of true crime, the most recent of which, just out, I think, this week, is The Quiet Don. The name of the author is Matt Birkbeck, and we have him on the phone. Matt, are you there? I'm here. Am I correct that you've written a couple of other books before this?
3: This is uh, my fifth.
1: Your fifth. What were the other ones, just for the sake of accuracy? Uh,
3: My last one was uh, Deconstructing Sammy, uh, which was a book about Sammy Davis Jr. And um, how he uh, died $15 million in debt and what happened to try to revive his estate, as well as going back to tell the story of his life. Uh, And then prior to that, I had written about I had a book called The Beautiful Child, another book called The Deadly Secret, and I co-authored a book uh, called Till Death Do Us Part.
1: Great. Well, tell our listeners who may or may not have heard of Russell Buffalino uh, if you can give a relatively quick thumbnail sketch before we get to some of the details that are covered in your book.
3: Russell Buffalino was arguably uh, one of the most powerful gangsters uh, in the U.S. Uh, from the 1940s up until the time he died in the early 1990s. Uh, He's the man that's responsible uh, for ordering the murder of Jimmy Hoffa uh, in the mid-1970s. Buffalino had been involved with um, a variety of businesses, um, legitimate and otherwise uh, had control of... uh, in a behind-the-scenes way of the Teamsters Union. He had a relationship with Hoffa that went back to the 1940s. Um, by the 1950s, he had, uh, he had ownership of casinos in Havana, Cuba. He was the uh, individual who had organized the infamous Appalachian meeting in 1957 where uh, dozens of gangsters had been arrested in upstate New York. Um, that was
1: when the appeared. mob really came out in, in public yeah, view for the really first time, right?
3: Exactly. That's what introduced organized crime to the um, to uh, to the U.S. To, to 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 the folks here. And um, he then subsequently, um, by the mid 1970s, he had control of three families: uh, one in Buffalo, his own in Northeast Pennsylvania and the Genovese family in New York. He spent half his time in New York City. Now he did all of this from his home base of Kingston, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Scranton, which made it all that more remarkable. And um so Buffalino had he in nineteen sixty four he had been identified by the government as being one of the most powerful mobsters in the country. But they didn't really pay any attention to him partly because of his Pennsylvania address. Um, but he was very powerful. He was very influential, uh, particularly uh, within Pennsylvania and in New York and in New Jersey. Um, had control of politicians. Had control of um, various media outlets, uh, law enforcement, judiciary and, um,
1: too. I think you're right. you write parts of parts of the judiciary as well, right?
3: He did. He, it was just he was, he was a remarkable individual, and you know, but. What he's known for, um, at least to to people who follow um, organized crime, was his involvement, or at least what the FBI believed, was his involvement in the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. When Hoffa disappeared, there was an investigation that the FBI assigned over 200 agents to it. And within a year, they had narrowed their list of suspects down to about six, which included Buffalino. Only they could never find that one piece of evidence to charge him with it. Hmm. And so one of his um, henchmen, who had been also among those six people, a fellow by the name of Frank Sheeran, had admitted in 2004 that he pulled the trigger uh, under orders from Russell. And um, what I had found out uh, in my uh, reporting was that um, the reason why Russell did it wasn't because that hoffa was looking to regain the um, presidency of the teamsters union which is what he was doing in nineteen seventy five and it was infuriating all the mob bosses um, but in fact hoffa and a couple of other gangsters were going to testify before a u-s senate committee that was investigating the cia's use of gangsters to depose fidel castro and among those who had been identified was russell buffalino um, as being one of those who had been recruited And so when Buffalino's name appeared in a Time magazine article, he decided to um, basically eliminate anyone and everyone that had been associated with it. And within two weeks, um, Sam Giancana from Chicago was killed. Jimmy Hoffa disappeared four weeks later. And then another gangster that was involved, Johnny Roselli, was found dead in Florida after that. So uh, Buffalino's uh, life had never really... um, been the focus of any kind of attention in terms of a book. And given my reporting on the casino situation in Pennsylvania, and I got to know a number of folks that were familiar with them, um, it kind of made it natural for me to try to tackle um, uh, the Buffalino story, which is what I did with The Quiet Time.
1: Well, to use an overused expression, the book is a great read. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back.
2: Hey, Jersey, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at info at houseofcardsradio.com or leave a message at our hotline at
0: 609-474-4627. Fellas, are you looking to spice things up in the bedroom? Been fantasizing about surprising your lover with an adventurous new toy or adult movie? Well, here's an offer you won't be able to resist go to adamandeve.com and for a limited time only you'll get 50% off just about any item. But that's not all. Oh no. When you select your one item at 50% off you'll also receive three free adult DVDs for a little inspiration. Plus a free extra gift so sensual we can't mention it on the radio. And to top it all off we'll even throw in free shipping on your entire order. And no. Or not teasing. So check out AdamandEve.com today for this special offer. Get 50% off one item when you type BABE16 for the offer code upon checkout. When you do, you'll get three free DVDs, a free extra gift, and free shipping. Just use offer code B-A-B-E-16 at AdamandEve.com.
2: Great moments in history. In November 1863, on a train headed for Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, President Abraham Lincoln decides to write the important address himself. This is a great outline,
3: fantastic. It's oh. If yours doesn't stack up, you won't get a chance to look at it.
1: I don't know what that means. I was going to let you see it, but I changed my mind. I, I'll write it. That, that thing sucks. June
2: 2008, House of Cards began podcasting. Go to HouseOfCardsRadio.com and click on the podcast button for all recent show downloads. Hey, this is Dave White from House of Cards with your House of Cards gaming report for the week of November twenty fifth, 2013. Pennsylvania residents will soon be able to win some money at their local bars. Lawmakers passed a bill which would allow about 4,500 bars and taverns to get a license to conduct pull tab games, daily drawings, and tavern raffles. The law is the largest expansion of gambling in the Keystone State since table games at casinos were permitted. Voters in Massachusetts have rejected a major casino proposal, again. This time, it was in the town of Milford, where Foxwoods proposed to build a $1 billion resort casino. The proposal was rejected by a 2-to-1 margin, and was another in a long line of defeats for casinos in Massachusetts. Voters in West Springfield, East Boston, and the town of Palmer all previously rejected proposals to bring casinos to their areas. And finally, a bit of history this week as online gaming started up in New Jersey. However, in order to comply with the requirement that all betting take place within state borders, small no-play zones along the Hudson and Delaware rivers have been created by the tech companies working with the casinos. As a result, not all residents near the state borders could gamble online. So if you're near New Jersey this Thanksgiving weekend, drive a little further into the state and give online gaming a try. Have any news or tips regarding casinos, gaming, or legislation, send us an email at newsroom at houseofcardsradio.com and follow us on Twitter at HOC Radio. Don't just listen to House of Cards. Now you can be part of the show with the House of Cards Hotline. Comments about the show, poker questions, you just want us to know about great places to play, or you just got bluffed out of a pot. Your messages may even be played on the air. Give us a call at 609-474-HOCR. That's 609-474-4627. The House of Cards Hotline. Available 24 hours a day. By leaving a message with House of Cards, you can send to having your message played on the air. This is House of Cards Radio with Ashley Adams.
1: In the field of local live entertainment, oh my God! <laughs> Welcome back, listeners. We're talking to Matt Birkbeck, who is the author of The Quiet Don, the untold story of mafia kingpin Russell Buffalino. It's already gotten some great reviews. Uh, I had a couple of questions just about the background stuff on Buffalino, and then I wanted to bring us more current and talk about the whole gaming industry in Pennsylvania and the corruption therein. Um, what did you find out about any possible connections between Buffalino and any assassination attempts on Castro. Did you delve into that? Did you say, yes, absolutely, there is a link? Or did you say, really, that it was too foggy to know? What did you come down on?
3: No, it was clear that there was a link. It was clear the CIA admitted that it used gangsters, that it recruited gangsters in the late 50s and 1960 um, to to eliminate Castro, as well as to help with the Bay of Pigs invasion several years later. Right. So they had had admitted it that year in 1975 to the church committee. Uh, Sam Giancana and Johnny Roselli had been identified elsewhere as being part of that. Uh, Buffalino's name had not come up until his Time Magazine article appeared. And now Buffalino wasn't, you know, he was called the Quiet Don, and that's because he had got his education in the 1920s, uh under Stefano Magadino in Buffalo, who was the head of the Buff uh the Buffalo family. And um Magadino did everything in the background. You know, wasn't in, you know, no flashy clothes, no big homes, um, you know, everything was done quietly and, and that's what Russell Buffalino did. He followed you know, he was taught well and that's how he um, had conducted his business. And so when he sees his name in Time magazine, uh he just goes into action and um doesn't want this investigation to go any further now I didn't write about I didn't write about this because I didn't have enough to go on but there was um, there were indications that he was still involved with the CIA uh, and that they had or may have had a role in what he was doing I mean it was to their benefit that these people would disappear too so but um, it didn't really it didn't Past the threshold that I needed it to to include it in the book, but it just it just you know added more, added to uh, Buffalino's, um influence you know continuing influence um, within um, within a variety of um, different uh, you know from from politics to um, you know as I mentioned the Teamsters which is the, one of the powerful most powerful unions in the country, um, as well as sort of other groups, you know.
1: I noticed uh, that you also reported on, at least in the 50s, that the ILGWU was part of his operation. And that, that surprised me because I worked with a related union in the scranton Wilkesbury area, the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union, which was always very, very clean. And I wondered what you relied on to make the connection between the ILG, which was Chick Jaikin's, A union based in New York and and the mob. I mean, what was the connection and how did you make it? There
3: there was um, an abundance of source material. You know, I had um, gone through thousands of pages of FBI reports. I went through uh, the House Assassinations Committee reports. I went through the Senate Committee reports. Um, I spent several years working on this book, so it's you know it's rich in source material and. So it laid out, you know, Buffalino, prior to his, to becoming involved with the Teamsters, he was very, very big with the uh, clothing business, the manufacturing business. Um, they sold it in New York, but they made it in Pennsylvania. And a number of the gangsters, including guys like Albert Anastasia and Frank Costello, some of the biggest names, uh, they participated in the, in, in the business, and they did it through Russell. And so they had um, their hands in a variety of... Uh, manufacturing businesses, but what they were, they were nothing more than sweatshops. Uh, they hired women. Uh, you know, the coal mines had, had, were closing. Coal mining uh, was, a, was a dying business, and uh, clothing manufacturing was one that uh, was healthy and thriving. But they would hire women, this is post-World War II, and pay them almost nothing. Uh, and that's when, uh, you know, you talked about the unions. You know, the unionization began, and I get into it a little bit, um, in the 1950s. Uh, with a woman named Min Matheson, who basically, you know, single-handedly took on Buffalino. And she made inroads, and one by one she would unionize these different manufacturing companies um, to the point where the entire business was becoming far more healthier and uh, organized crime had less of an influence uh, within it. So probably, I guess you mentioned that you were involved with it maybe by the time or perhaps by the time that you got involved, you know, that had continued to the point where organized crime had been completely um, taken out.
1: Yeah, well, okay, that, that makes perfect sense to me. I, I have just one last question on the research techniques, and then I wanted to get uh, more current. Did your research involve actually having to talk to former mobsters or their families or even current mobsters, or was it pretty much not going in that direction for your primary uh Research.
3: No, it, it went in that direction. It was they were sources I had developed while I was covering the um, Pennsylvania Pennsylvania gaming issue, and um, they were sources. You know, I had done a number of investigative reports which exposed uh, just how uh, corruptive uh, just the entire um, initiative was and over the course of several, you know, I covered it for about six years, and over the course of this time, uh, people actually reached out to me, and it was through those contacts that I developed other contacts. So I got a pretty good read on exactly what was going on, who was who, um, and and in particular, it was how I confirmed some of the information that I had reported in the book, um, especially regarding Jimmy Hoffa. And, you know, it, it came from folks that were affiliated with the family, the Buffalino family, um, you know, what's left of it. Uh, and um,
1: Were there so any I members that of it. that family who didn't take too kindly to you bringing a dark light on uh, the quiet Don, who didn't appreciate your efforts and maybe wanted to discourage you from doing this?
3: Well, it's <laughs> a pretty good question, because it actually did happen. It happened early on. Um, I was asked to meet someone. Um, I can't say who. And uh, so I was invited to a meeting, and I actually went to a meeting. And the, and the, and the individual—I didn't know who I was meeting with—and I actually described the meeting in the back of the book. And I had gone to this meeting, and I was introduced to an individual, who I did recognize. And the individual, um, who was a legitimate businessman too, but uh, the reason I was there is because they wanted to find out if I'd spoken to certain mobsters. And of course, I wasn't going to tell him or anyone else who I had spoken with. But, you know, clearly that they, they were somewhat nervous about uh, who I was talking to, what kind of information I was getting. You know, I can't say that the person I actually met with was an old member of the Buffalino family, but it was someone who was very involved with the other part of the story, which is the, the Naples part, um, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit now. Yes. And, you know, soon. But, um, and so I think they were more interested in what was I going to tell about the current situation as opposed to, you know, was I going to expose any other secrets about Buffalino.
1: Very interesting. Did you feel ever feel uh, afraid for your life?
3: Um
1: do you now? No.
3: No, nah, no. You know, people ask me that and, you know, I'm a reporter and I go about my business and, you know, try to do the best job that I could do. Okay. And you know, I mean, I stepped on toes in terms of writing about political corruption, you know, and exposing, I've written about, you know, uh, one of my books I've written about a serial killer, and uh, you know, I sat face-to-face with another killer for six hours in a prison cell as he was telling me his story. Uh, you know, working, writing about, uh, on this topic, uh, I don't necessarily think about it until someone brings it up.
1: <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Well, let's let's get up to speed on the whole casino thing. Let me ask you, really, to me, the most important question I have as somebody who followed Ed Rendell in his career, do you think he was dirty? Absolutely. Tell us why.
3: Going back to the 1960s, and this goes back to Buffalino, Buffalino had control of the resort business in the Poconos, and I think most people in the country know where the Poconos are the famous honeymoon resort area to Northeast PA. It's about 75 minutes west of New York City. And for years, they tried to get casinos in the Poconos. And cheaply because it was many of the resorts were owned by organized crime. And the people of Pennsylvania would never allow it. Every time they'd bring a referendum up, they'd vote it down. You know, every five, ten years there'd be a new referendum, and they would vote it down. Ed Rendell Who's a former mayor of Philadelphia? Did a great job getting that city back on its feet. Became chairman of the Democratic National Committee at a very, very difficult time when Al Gore and George Bush were contesting for the presidency in 2000. Uh, he decided he's going to run for uh, governor of Pennsylvania. And on his platform, there was an issue, probably like in every other state in the country, over rising school taxes. And he said, I got an idea. Let's bring casino. Let's bring gambling to Pennsylvania, and we'll use that money to reduce school taxes. It's basically a ruse to sell the plan. So he gets the legislature, or at least two key members of the legislature, to, dra- to draft the legislation, and through a lot of arm twisting, on the fourth of July in two thousand four, they actually approve it, and immediately. A number of different things there are events that take place, but before we get into all of that, so yes, Rendell was involved in it in the beginning. Um, Rendell helped form it. Rendell knew exactly what they were doing um, to get it though uh, you had to he had to make he had to cut deals with certain people and one of the deals was that this one businessman from northeast Pennsylvania who had ties to Russell Buffalino was going to get a casino in the Poconos Is that Lewis to Naples. And now he's Louis de Naples.
1: Tell us about Louis de Naples.
3: Louis de Naples is probably one of the most powerful men in Pennsylvania. He's a billionaire. He's from the Scranton area. He, was, he, he made his money in junkyards, um, he made his money in landfills. Uh, in 1977, he had been arrested and charged uh, with several other people. Uh, for bilking the city of Scranton over half a million dollars for phone in phony billing for cleanup work uh, from a hurricane that struck the region in 1972, his trial ended in a hung jury because the juror that decided um, to acquit them uh, had been bribed, and it wasn't just bribed by anyone; had been bribed by the underboss. Of the Buffalino family, his name is James Ostico.
1: I think you tell. Uh, I think you say in the book that it was like for a thousand bucks and some tires and <laughs> yeah, it was something like, ridiculous. It
3: was a thousand dollars, four tires, and a couple of other things. <laughs> and um, so, now Ostico was arrested with Buffalino at the Appalachian meeting in 1957. Just to tell you who this guy Ostico is, right? So, in any event, so before say, so before prosecutors. Um, bring him back to trial again on the same charges. They cut a deal with him. He's going to plead no contest, and he pays a ten thousand dollar fine. But it's a felony on his record.
1: Right. So he should and, never be able to run a casino in, in Las Vegas. That's well, so for sure.
3: Think, well, you would think, and then uh, until Pennsylvania decided to change, you know, to change the, the the playing field. So in any event, so now now Ostico, as it is, is charged several years later with fixing that trial. He's charged, and he's found guilty, and he goes to prison for seven years. And uh, so now, years later, DeNaples Now, Buffalino dies in 1994, and DeNaples is a, is a rising star in Pennsylvania, and he's, got, um, and he's basically following the Buffalino path. He's got um, uh, political cronies um, throughout the state. He's, he's, he's funding them. He's giving them millions in contributions. He's got law enforcement under his thumb. And now we're not just talking about the local cop. We're talking about uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, and by 1994, when Buffalino dies, um, you know, Russell really comes in... Not Russell, I'm sorry. Uh, De Naples really comes into his own, and he becomes this huge power in Pennsylvania. So he now is going to get a casino. He supported Ed Rendell, and as I had reported previously, had funneled more than half a million dollars to Rendell during his campaign, um, Through other sources, so now once the casino game once the casino gaming um legislation is passed in two thousand and four uh Louis de Naples buys the old Mount Airy lodge, which had been closed for a couple of years um, and says he 's going to build a casino there He'd, he he hadn 't even been approved for a license yet
1: wow, so he the fix must have been in
3: so well <laughs> <laughs> that 's what so we, <laughs> obviously our antenna is up, but trying to prove it is a whole different animal. So we're following this story from 2004 to 2005 up until late 2006 when he's actually approved for a gaming license. And then I write a story. This is when now we start getting into the whole mob thing. And now we write a story about how the um, the guy who took over the Buffalino family, once Russell died, a guy by the name of Billy D'Elia, um, had, been, he had been arrested and the uh, investigators with the uh, with the gaming board wanted to talk to him about the Naples. Uh, only they never got a hold of him. And this was like at the very end of the application process. So we re- we reported on that. And then from that from 2006 up until 2010, uh, when I left the newspaper, had continued to report about just how corrupt this entire process was. Uh, and in the middle of all of this with Ed Rendell.
1: Well, Matt, this can go on longer. We have to cut the segment off, though. I want to just ask you one final question, and then maybe we have another interview with you on this book once it gets published and once it's out, and will be a a big hit, maybe when you do the movie. Um, Are the casinos now run by um, people with less than stellar credentials in Pennsylvania?
3: I think that the industry itself... Um, it has shaken out. There were two casinos that were in question, one out in Pittsburgh, and then, of course, the Mount Airy Casino. Now, the Pittsburgh one has, has since come under different ownership. Uh, the River. It was the Naples fam. Yeah. It that, was, I'm yeah. trying to remember. I think, I think that was the one, yeah. Uh, a guy by the name of Don Barden had owned it, only he had no money, so he never should have been approved in the first place. <laughs> uh, and then there's the Naples and Mount Airy. Now, the Naples, while he doesn't or isn't supposed to have and he kind of ties to the casino. His family does, I see. and they still own it. Uh, so, in, There's another chapter death, to
1: this book, it sounds like, which is The Son of the Quiet Don, Lewis de Naples. I mean, that's the next we, part we, of we the story. We
3: have to wait another 10, 15 years to see how it all plays <laughs> out.
1: <laughs> well, I've been talking to Matt Birkbeck. Matt, you have written a great book. I'm sure it will be a successful one. It is The Quiet Don, The Untold Story of Mafia Kingpin Russell Buffalino. I wish you success with sales. And uh, maybe we'll have you come back on again. That'd be my pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Listeners, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with more House of Cards.
5: Are you or a loved one currently suffering from arthritis, COPD, or other chronic conditions and can't get relief from current treatments? If so, there may be another option. Local physicians are conducting research studies in your area today, and you may be eligible to receive up to $1,300 in compensation for participation. These studies are confidential and are taking place for a limited time. Call 855-912-PAIN, 855-912-PAIN today to see if you qualify. Health insurance is not required. Call 855-912-7246.
2: You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at houseofcardsradio.com. Here's the wonderful Joan Rivers with her thoughts on poker players.
1: And your people, you give money with blood on it. I met your people in Vegas for 40 years. None of them have last names. None of them. They have cash fulls of... You're a poker player. A poker player. That's, That's awesome. beyond white
0: trash. Poker players oh, are poker the most players. awesome people poker in the world. Poker players are trash, darling. Trash.
2: House of Cards, proudly serving your white trash needs since 2007.
1: Welcome back, listeners. This is House of Cards. I'm Ashley Adams. And before we end, I just want to remind all our listeners that we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guests, about maybe guests that you'd like us to have on. We have a lot of people that we're contacting regularly and can have on a lot of different types of guests like we did today with Maria Ho and Clyde Barrow. Send your questions to info at Radio. We're very interested in them. And, of course, if they're particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our typical segment of Mailbag, which we're not having today. So that will do it for the show. Come back next week for more House of Cards. Good night and good luck.